Right. This morning, uh, there's no uh, non-awkward way to just kind of transition in between these things. But if you would, I would love for you to pull out a copy of Scripture and turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 7 through 21. And what you will notice here in just a moment is that it is a text uh, saturated in the love of God. Let me read it here again. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his, per- his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father, we stand trembling in front of your word, but trembling only for a moment, because we see with what great love you have loved us. Father God, I pray that in your word that it would be sharper than any two-edged sword, and Lord, that it would cut uh, bone and marrow, Lord, that none of us in this room would, uh, uh, would hear your word and not be changed this morning. Lord, we pray for the transformation that comes by way of your gospel and your word. Lord, we pray all of these things over your word in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a, uh, what seems like a rather simple question, and that is, what is love? And it might seem like to ask the question, what is love, that I might be starting some sort of like marriage homily, that uh, this is a wedding ceremony. And you can think of it like that if you like. We uh, are the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom, but I do actually mean it almost at this point in a philosophical way. What is love? If you had to describe what love was, many of us would have a very difficult time trying to describe what love is without using the word love. 
So what we find then is, is that as you go down this road, you're going to find your worldview really influencing the way that you would define that word. And in our culture, if we can be honest, there are kind of two polar opposite definitions uh, that we can come by here. And, and, and they're not the only definitions, but they're the ones that are most extreme from one another. You might start from a worldview of like secular humanism. You might start uh, from an evolutionary biological worldview. That is a genesis by which you can start in order to define love. And what you would say if you were an evolutionary biologist is that love is a biochemical reaction in the brain and body that uh, makes sexual reproduction more likely so that you can pass on your genes so that you can propagate a species. Like, that's what love is. It's essentially just a description to those neurons firing in our body that make us feel something that makes, uh, that, that makes sex, sexual reproduction more likely. It's a useful thing. Love is not real then. It is just something that happens bodily, to which love is unknown to the cosmos, Space and time know nothing of it because it's not really real. It's just kind of an animalistic impulse. What that worldview does is reduces love into something that can just be explained by chemicals. That's a very desperate kind of view of love. And it's the kind of view of love that all of the poets, all of the novelists, all of the, uh, the, the composers, all of the artists would say reticently, no, no, that is not love. Love must be more than just neurons firing in a brain. It must be something that is bigger, that is grander. Love to uh, the artist is going to be something that is elementary. It's a, it's a force. It's something that drives us. It's something that is uh, singular in its entity. It is a moral goodness. It is a necessity for humanity. It is worthy. It is desirable. But even in the midst of that, rather than reducing it down to something that is just neurons firing, they're going to say that it is something that is sing- singular, that is elemental, that it exists that it needs to be elevated and put on a pedestal, that it is dependent on nothing, it is defined by nothing. Love is just love. And there's this reservoir of love that we look to get and that we might write into pages and sonnets and songs, and that's going to be a different, a completely different view of what love is. So we asked the question this morning, who's right? Is love really real? Does it have substance? Does it have definition? Does it exist outside of momentary passions? Is it even maybe possibly eternal? Who is it that is right? These questions John ventures to answer for us. It may not seem like that, but he's going to give us a definition of love. Why? Not because he wants us to know what love is nearly as much as he wants us to know who love is. And what we, what we find here in this passage, yes, this long passage with lots of different rabbit trails that all kind of accumulate into one thing, I would say that we find this morning that God's abiding love is sent to us in order to save us that it might be seen in us. God's abiding love is sent to us that it might save us, that, we could, that it might be seen in us. That's where we're going this morning. 
And because we do have some guests this morning, I want to acknowledge that there is a context that we are kind of dropping into. Our church marches through uh, books of the Bible. We uh, look to God to determine what it is that we learn, and I uh, just stand in awe of the fact that he would orchestrate this body this morning with many guests for us to be talking this morning about God's love, specifically as it is expressed in brotherly love. But John is writing to a specific group. He's writing to the churches in kind of Asia Minor, think Galatia and Ephesus and Capernaum. These churches had been infiltrated by false teachers, and John is really challenging these Christians with very hearty doctrine. He's very concerned with the expression of that in deeds, and he wants to see it deepened in devotion. So we've got doctrine, deeds, and devotion that John is, uh, is regularly kind of pulling at as we march through this letter. So he's, mar- he's walking through this with these early Christians, and he's wanting to teach them something. And he does this in very direct ways. There are time and time again these things where he said, if you do not love, then the Father's love is not in you. That's like a really strong, direct saying that if, uh, if you hate, then God does, he can't be in you. God's abiding love cannot be in you. These are very stern things, but he also does it in the context of great tenderness. Verse 7, if we look there, we can see that he's writing to a beloved. He's writing to his friends. He's writing to the children of God in these churches. And what he's doing is wanting to confront the confusion that these false teachers have massaged into the church. And he wants to confront that confusion with confident assurance. So for you this morning, if you've walked in here into this room with a lot of anxiety, if you've walked into it with a lot of fear, if you've walked into it with a lot of confusion, with unknowing, John is going to be trying to confront that with confidence, with assurance. Opponents of the gospel like to quote the bolder statements that we see in 1 John as evidence against the gospel. But here in this passage, in chapter 4, the world loves to quote this passage because why 25 times the word love is mentioned. And, and it's something that is comforting to the world. But they don't really pay attention to the essence of it, what it says. So let's do that this morning. Instead of just taking individual quotes and saying God does exist or God doesn't exist, he is loving or he is unloving, let us go to verse 7. It says this, that God sent his love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. We're going to pause right there. Verse 7 starts off to tell us that God's love is sent. Love is from God. We, if you were to march through First John, you're going to notice time and time again that the word from is used a lot. Why? Because John is trying to build an argument. He's trying to show us where these things come from. You are children from God. Here we find that love is from God. Love then does not arise in the chemistry of the body, nor does it exist singularly on some sort of pedestal only to be reached up to by artists. Rather, what we find is is that love issues and is sent from God. Verse 9 and 10 actually want to bolster this point. It says, in this, in this, in this, the love of God, in this, is love. That's how both of those verses start. You can even circle that, if you will. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. 
Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. What are we learning here about love? Love is not something that exists outside of us that we can reach up to and pull down for ourselves. It doesn't exist inside of us that we can like conjure it up. We can look inside of ourselves and then discover what true love is. What John is trying to tell you this morning is that God is love and he has sent it into this world. He's the one that uh, characterizes it. He's the one that issues it. He's the one that gives it. Love is from God. John wants us to be uh, completely clear about this. So if you want to mine for, if you want to drill for, if you want to discover a trove of love, you don't start in the heart or art of man. You start first with God. Verse 16 says all the more. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Verse 8 confirms that God is love. What what is this telling us? I don't want for us to get lost in all of the, the recitation and repetition of the word love. What we need to know is that God is love. What does that mean? Does that mean that uh, love exists somehow outside of God or above God and then informs who God is? No, that's not, it's not a chicken or egg kind of thing. God exists in his character, his nature. The things that come out of him are perfectly expressed love. If you want to know love, where do you look, beloved? You look to God. Why? Because God is love. That's what verse 16 says. Love comes from God. Because God is love. God is love. He defines love. Yes, God defines love. Love is not something apart or greater than God. God's nature is love. Love is lovely because God is love. I'm going to say that one more time. The reason why we like, the reason why we find beautiful love is because it speaks of something bigger and grander than ourselves. It speaks of God. Not just some idea, not just some philosophy, it speaks of a person. It speaks of God the Father, first and foremost. God is love, and he sends his love by doing something in particular. Look back at verse 9 and verse 10. It doesn't just say that he sent his love, it says that he sends his love in a particular person. He sends it by sending his son. We have come to know and to believe in God's love because we believe and know his son, Jesus Christ. Christians, therefore, know and believe in the sent son, the full expression of love from a loving father. So first, we need to know in our heart of hearts that God's love is sent, and it's sent in his son. But the second thing that we need to know is that God's love saves. Verse 14, the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. The sent son saves. That's what this passage is saying. If you want to know what true love is, yes, you look first at the Father. Why? Because God is love. But if you want to know it and see it and see it expressed in a person, you can see that it is sent perfectly in the sending of the Savior Son. That's what we're getting here. Verse 9 and 10 go on to actually tell us what this Savior looks like, what he came to do. It says that God sent his son to be, first, the propitiation for our sins, and second, so that we might live through him. 
So first, we know that he is sending his son because he's actually trying to get our sins away from us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to himself and away from our sins. Why? So that we might live through him. God didn't just send his son to earth. He sent his son to the cross to pay for sins. Why? So that we might have forever favor. There's a word that's used in here, and we don't use it very often. In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, most often it it actually expresses something about the Christian faith or specifically about Jesus because this word is so specifically used in this text that it must be defined by Jesus, and that's the word propitiation. We don't use that word, propitiation, very often. Why? Well, because it really deals with one thing. It deals with sin being replaced by forever favor through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and died on a cross for us that we might have forever favor, that our sins might be removed because of the kindness of God and favor might be bestowed on us. That's what propitiation is. It's a funny word. It's a big word. We can teach it to our kids, but they're going to find its application here. Why? Because God is love. He sent his son. Why did he send his son? To be the propitiation for our sins and so that we might have eternal, everlasting life, so that we might live forever with him. And that is how we know love. Verse 15, whoever confesses Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. Verse 13 actually tells us that that love that God has, that God abiding is the spirit We see that it's the Spirit of God, but it's also that he is in God. Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he abides in God. That's what verse 15 says. So if you're here this morning and you go, I want to know love. I want to know what its essence is. I want to experience love. I come from a background where love was not bestowed on me. I was neglected. Everybody that I've known that was supposed to love me ran away from me. I'd quite like to know a loving father. What we need to do is introduce you to Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation of sins and who brings eternal life. But what we need to know is that he is had, that he is known, that you can receive all of this forever favor by confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Why is John talking like this? Why is he specifically mentioning the confession of Jesus as the Son of God? Well, there's a specific reason. Two, actually. One is that there is no way to the Father except through Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But the second is, is that these false teachers had come in and created confusion about how to get to God's love. If you wanted to know how to get to God's love, John is trying to write you and tell you, no, it's not through these other things. There are not many paths up to knowing God's love. There is one path. His name is Jesus, and you need to know him. Furthermore, you need to confess that he is the son of God. Why is he mentioning it? Because the false teachers had created confusion around who is the son of God and how might you become a son and daughter of God. You confess that Jesus is the son of God. What happens when you do that? God abides in you. His spirit comes into you. And not only that, you abide, you live in God. God's love saves sinners by his immense grace through simply confessing that Jesus is the sent son. Does that not sound like too good to be true? Does it not sound like, man, it just seems like the immensity of loving grace ought to be more, uh, uh, more difficult to obtain? 
than just confessing somebody as the son of God. It seems like it's almost too good to be true. Verse 17 says this, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. If your heart of hearts is like, it's too simple. The gospel is too good. It's too easy just to confess on Jesus Christ and to receive this everlasting life. What John wants you to know is is that you can uh, not just avoid, but you can have your judgment placed on Jesus Christ and you can receive all of his forever favor simply by confessing that he is the son of God and then you can have confidence in it. For those who lack confidence, for those who are questioning their faith, you need to hear John's words this morning. It really is this simple. All you have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ, and you receive oceans and oceans and oceans of God's loving, tender mercy and grace. Will you feel like it all the time? Not all the time. I don't all the time. But is it yours to have? Is it yours to own simply by this confession? Absolutely and you can have confidence in it. When can you have confidence in it? Even for the day of judgment. For those of us who think that there are things that are just a part of our past that are too big to overcome, that uh, there were sins too deep to be dug up and placed on Jesus, what you need to know is that even on the day of judgment, even when uh, the quick, the living, and the dead are judged, you can have confidence in Jesus Christ. Why? Because your faith is so great? No, because God's grace is so deep. It goes as deep as his everlasting love for you. But why is John returning time and time again through this letter to confidence and assurance? In a weird way, I want for this to be uh, confidence building for you. If you're a person that lacks confidence in uh, the gospel, if you're a person that questions whether or not you're a believer, if you're a person that even questions whether or not the reality of faith, whether or not the reality of God's love is real, I want for you to be weirdly encouraged by this. The reason why John is returning over and over again to confidence and assurance is because the beloved that's what he calls us, lacks confidence in the midst of trial. Be encouraged. Even early believers, early believers in the church lacked confidence when they faced great trials. There was confusion being stirred up. There was dust that was making a view of God's love hard to see through. And what John wants to do is clear the air and he wants you to have confidence for the day of God's judgment. Why? Because there is something to be confident in and it's his love for you. But you need to know that God's people have always struggled with this kind of thing. His beloved have always lacked a certain amount of confidence. Specifically, the beloved is lacking confidence in God's love. How do we know that? Because that's what John is trying to approach. John is preaching the gospel to them. And by putting it in God's word, by the sovereign hand of the spirit, he is preaching it to you today. You can have confidence in God's love. So here's the application this morning that I want to ask you. Do you struggle to believe that God is love? Do you often think about God as uh, very judgmental, very disappointed in you? Do you think of him as wrathful and vengeful, almost to exclusivity on, in terms of his love? Do, do, you, do you see God in any other light other than loving and gracious towards you in your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you experience any other kinds of things? God sends his love to you and his son saves you. 
For some, love has been fleeting and conditional. Uh, Feeling unloved and unlovable is just our day in and day out experience. But what you need to hear John say to us this morning is that God is love and that God's love saves. So, so how should we deal with fear and anxieties then? How should we deal with these complex inner workings of our soul? Verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but God's love, God's perfect love casts out fear. It casts it out. It throws it out, for fear has to do with punishment. God is love. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in God. There is no fear in us because his love abides in us. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And if Jesus, if you've taken Jesus on board, if he's the love of your life, if you are abiding in him, if through that abiding in Jesus' love you are experiencing God's love, there's no room for fear anymore. There's only room for confidence that God is a God of love. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Do you fear? Do you have anxiety? Maybe it is your story that you are being perfected in this love, that you are being drawn into his grace by faith, and it's this march, it's this daily thing, but what you need to do today is to actually hold it, to behold it and have confidence in it. Verse 12 says, if God abides in you, his perfect love, his love is perfected in us. So, so here's, here's the question that should arise in us after that. After hearing John both be really gracious and, uh, and, and casting this big vision for God's love, but then also hearing some things that are really hard. Are you perfectly loving? Do you perfectly have confidence in his love? Those two things are really hard to put together. And so my question is, for myself, how can I know? How can I truly know? How do you know that his true love truly abides in you? What are the evidences? So we've learned so far this morning that God's love is sent and that God's love saves. Now we need to know how God's love is seen. What are the evidences of it? Verse 12. Look at it with me. Don't trust me. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, he abides in us, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I'm going to read that again because it's a bit strange. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, then God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's a strange thing for him to say. It's almost as though that little kind of snippet of that one part of that sentence was just like lowered out of nowhere into this verse, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to fit. John seems to have lost his train of thought again, but the answer is no. John is weaving beautiful truth in the midst of all this. What he's trying to do, and follow me here, is he's trying to build a connection between what is seen and what is unseen. What we see with our eyes and what is unseen. He's trying to build a connection between the invisible abiding presence of God and the visible evidences of God. So there's this visible versus invisible, seen versus unseen. In fact, if you went through this passage, you'll notice that the word seen is used several times. Why? Because John is trying to weave a beautiful tapestry here. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. 
So the invisible Father loves us, so we are to love. Who are we to love? Here's the truth. We read this passage so often out of context. We hear it from the world so often out of context. God is love, right? We hear that all the time, but then we hear we love because he first loved us. And what we want to do is try to shoehorn all of this into one understanding of it. We want to understand it as loving him. We love God because he first loved us. Isn't that how you read it most often? And and that's not untrue, of course. We do love him because he first loved us. It tells us something about the initiative that God took in displaying his love. Who moved first? God moved first. Who loved first? God loved first. So yes, it tells us that thing. But if you read it in context, it's not just that we love him because he first loved us. It's that we love others because he first loved us. I want us to read it in that context. We don't just love him because he first loved us. The context here is the love of brothers. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, You can circle that word seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Okay, so what's happening here? He's building this connection between what is seen and what is unseen. And what he's saying is, is that no one has ever seen God. You can't say that you've looked on his face. You can't say that you behold God's love. You can't say that you've seen it with your own eyes. So where do we look for the evidence? You look for it in how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The context of all of this has to do not just with the way that we love God in return, but how we love our brother. So what is the evidence of God's love in our lives? It's how we love one another. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him. Where is it coming from? Where is this commandment coming from? It's coming from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. What is the context? What is the primary context? I want for this actually to be the morning that you reframe this very famous verse, you love because he first loved you, into we love one another because he first loved us. That's a more true and more right, more contextual understanding of this verse. Does it diminish at all that he initiates love? Not at all. In fact, I think that John would say it empowers it. It empowers a right understanding of the effect of God's love in your life. So what is it that we're getting at? Why are we going this deep on all of this? It's because John is saying that he has received this teaching and this commandment from Jesus. He says, this is the command we have from him. Who's him? It's Jesus. Who did John spend years with? Who did he love? Who loved him? Who did he hear his teachings? Who did he cling on his every word? It's Jesus. John received a commandment from Jesus, and it's to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, to you, you have a record of the apostolic, spirit-filled, word-saturated command in your life that you love the brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a command. It's a matter of obedience. But it's bolstered by the things that he says first. Verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us in the sending of a saving, self-sacrificing son, then you are to love one another. What's the application for us? What does John want us to get out of this text? Do you love God's children? 
Do you love the church that he so dearly loves? That's a legitimate question for you. If you're a note taker, write it down. Do you love God's children? Do you love his church? Where the Spirit of God has come and abided in you, where you have experienced God's true love, there will be nothing except for love flowing out of you for God's children. You cannot hate your brothers and sisters in Christ and claim that you love God. That's what John's telling us. Is it a hard word? It is. Why? Because all of us have frustrations and difficulties. Uh, We have uh, sometimes what can only be described as like hateful feelings towards brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there's a certain amount of lacking confidence that all of us must have when we approach this passage. But what must we do then? revel in our insecurities, be so, uh, so just downtrodden that I, I do, I have hate in my heart towards brothers and sisters, and I guess that means that I'm not saved. That is not the response, beloved. Neither is it the response to just obey this command as dutifully as you can. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll just bootstrap it, and I'll start loving everybody, and they'll be so loved by this loving lover. Like, that's not the application either, Right? It's to look back at the God of love and see how deeply, how magnificently, how wondrously he's loved us. For us to experience that love, for us to know, for us to know that love, for us to experience that love, and for us to be forever changed by that love. We have to ask the question this morning, do we truly love one another? If you do, boast in Christ. Have confident assurance. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a, a, a man who was a part of this church over a decade ago who reached out to me for the first time in 10 years. And there was a reason why uh, it had been 10 years. He was a, a man that we had actually, uh, with, with a, a lot of painstaking, and, and probably, and I would just confess this, um, uh, you know, some mistakes made on, you know, our church's behalf. We had actually exercised church discipline going through Matthew 18. We put, had put him out of our body. And, and we did it not because it felt good or, I mean, like, I've never had more sleepless nights than going through all of this. It was so hard and so difficult. And the reaction was uh, very hard. There was fear. There was insecurity. There were physical, there were places where I felt physically vulnerable going through this. But we wanted to be obedient to Christ and his commandments in, uh, in Matthew 18. And so we put him out of the body in faith that he would return to the body. And this week... After years of kind of checking in on him, and then uh, in, in 2018, I sent my last message to him, and he told me in no unequivocal terms, do not contact me again. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with the church. I don't want anything to do with it. Five years ago, that was the last word that I had, but I still prayed for him. I still, I still genuinely loved him. Last week, he called me and uh, apologize, not just for our last communication where he told me, I, I, I don't want to talk with you anymore, but just said that God had been pursuing him and been reawakening in him a desire and, and feeling. And his specific words were, God's love chased me. And he chased me through simple texts that I uh, received from the church, people reaching out and loving, on, just, just, just displaying the love of God to him. Here's the beautiful thing that happened this last week. God is drawing him back into the church. 
He's reawakening faith after 10 years really outside of a faithful community and a desire to have anything to do with God. And what was it that he cited that chased him back into it, that reminded him of it? It was the love of God being displayed through what? The love of God's people. In the midst of really good, like easy situations? No. In the midst of like the hardest stuff that I've ever had to deal with as a pastor, And God's love was evident to him. And God's love called him back into faithfulness. And I believe is reawakening in him a faith that he is receiving grace through Jesus Christ. Our visible love for one another testifies. It testifies to a Savior who is sent. And it it testifies to a Savior who is sent and expresses an undying love for an invisible God. So our visible love for one another testifies to the invisible that loves us so deeply that he was willing to give his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but that they would have eternal life. The Father's abiding love was sent to us in order to save us, that it might be seen in us. God's great love is at the heart of the gospel, and it has a loving effect on us. So so what do we do then? How do we live? We live in light of God's love. And we see it as primary, we see it as big, we see it as uh, something that we have received and something that we have to give away. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong, a clanging cymbals. If I, uh, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Why? Love is patient, it is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. If you look at biology, love ends. At the moment that those synapses stop firing or you go into the ground, love ends. If, if love is this kind of ineffable, intangible like thing that exists on its own and we're just always trying to reach for it and it's out there, then it eludes us, it evades us. But if God is love, if he sends his son in love, if we love one another, then we know truly what true love is. Love does bear all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love. It is boundless. It is beautiful. We ask you that you would help us to love like you love. God and Father, we live in the midst of a, uh, a loveless generation, um, Lord, one that um, tries for and tries to explain what love is, but it cannot because it does not know you. Father, we want to know you. We want to know your love. 
Lord, we see your love expressed to us in no uncertain terms in the person of Jesus Christ. We see it. Father, we ask you that by your great grace, Lord, that we would live in love, that we would live in your love, but then we would express it towards one another through uh, uh, careful attention to one another, through the bearing of burdens, through uh, not being conceited and prideful, but laying down our hopes and dreams for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ, not boasting, but uh, careful attention to other people's needs. Father, we want to be self-sacrificial just like Jesus. Father, I pray your blessing on this church. I pray that you would help City Church to be a selfless, loving church. Father, I pray that by your power, people would know you by the love that we have for one another. Father, that uh, prayer is too big for us to uh, muscle up, for us to try to conjure up inside of ourselves. We must rely on you. So we're placing it in front of you and we're asking with great faith that you would bring it to effect for the name and fame of Jesus Christ. And so we pray in his name, amen.